is Luke chapter 3, and I'll begin with just a little bit of review to help us orient again to our context and to what we've covered and discovered. One of the reasons it's good... um, One of the reasons it's good to do this is so we understand the author and his desire to see and to appreciate various uh, things. And so we're going to to kind of orient ourselves. Jesus, if you'll remember, is down uh, by the Jordan uh, River in that uh, in that region. And the reason that he went there uh, is to is to encounter, as many people were at that particular uh, time, uh, who were Jews, going down to hear the word of the prophet. This is the last. Of the Hebrew prophets that would be John the baptizer. And part of that is that he's calling people uh, to repentance. And the, the, the outward sign of this would have been baptism. Especially for a Gentile. But now he's saying even you Jews. And then even Jesus himself is being baptized. Not because he needs cleansing. But that he identifies uh, with us. And that it, it's, a, it's, it's really a, it's a foreshadowing of the fact that he will be baptized fully. Uh, in the end, uh, with God's judgment in our place and for our own sin. But one of the things that he's calling people, this is a different baptism we talked about last week. It's a different baptism than the Christian baptism. Uh, it, was a, it was a rite, it was a, a, a ritual out, outward sign that did point to a cleansing. And it was a baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming of Messiah that John was anticipating. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Repent, be baptized here. He's calling people uh, down. And so as they come, uh, the repentance we talked about last week, even as we, we heard in the definition of what is repentance unto life, it's not only a turning. That's what the word repent, repent means. It's not only turning from something, it's turning to something. In fact, if you don't do both of those, it's not repentance and it won't last. It might be remorse, it might be regret, it might be worldly sorrow. But to have change, to have, to have repentance that leads to life in Christ, it has to be a turning from and a turning to. It's not, it's not enough to say, no, I don't want to do that anymore. It's embarrassing, it's a bad habit, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's this, it's that, I, you know, I don't want to do this. But to also say, I want to go toward and turn away from sin and self. And I want to turn to the one who is, as we sang earlier, the true joy giver. That is repentance unto life. It prepares the way when we repent to have communion and fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All of those were, all of those were present. All the persons of the Godhead last week when we read at, uh, near the end of Luke 3... We're there at Jesus' baptism. God the Son there taking, you know, beginning of his ministry. Uh, we see there he's being baptized and he's stepping forth in faith and obedience. And then the skies open and God the Son in the form of the dove comes and descends. And then the voice of God the Father, unique voice that's audibly heard. Behold, my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is the high point. <laughs> In many respects, at least for Jesus, the acclamation and the praise of his heavenly father, the love and the affection, the, 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 the endorsement, so to speak, the acclaim. But then he enters what? A mission that involves affliction and suffering. That's where we're going to pick up a reading now. So I invite you to stand because what Jesus now does is he heads into the wilderness, the desert wilderness. And uh, before we read of this. Uh, We are going to uh, look at the end of chapter 3. We're not going to skip over it. I think it's important, although I'm not going to try to pronounce all these names. 
course, half the time you guys miss it because I just say it so fast and with such boldness that you think I, I pronounce it the right way. Okay, all right, give you a little secret. All right, okay. Verse 23, this is the genealogy of Jesus. I'll read the first and the end. Hear this, this is God's word, Luke 3, 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then he goes through each of these, tracing all the way back, goes past Abraham, goes all the way uh, back to what we find in verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, recognize these names, and then the son of Adam, the son of God. Continuing on, chapter 4, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Men shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If then, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on the other hand, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we ask right now, uh, we need your help. So we ask that you would please uh, give us open hearts, open minds uh, to surrender to you. Give us clarity. Give us faith so that we would fix our gaze uh, on Jesus. All of the the power that he has to meet and to, to deal with our weakness, to deal with our great need. We ask that you would speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Uh, We all have friends who uh, enjoy harping on one particular subject, right? You are those friends, okay? We, We all have those things or that thing that we're very passionate about comes up naturally, sometimes not even naturally. It just keeps coming up in our conversation. I have a friend, and he loves motorcycles. And it seems like every time we get together for coffee or or lunch or we're chatting on the phone, he's telling me about the latest deal he got or the one that he's looking at or a road trip he went on with his motorcycle. He's just really passionate about the motorcycle. Now, I don't know that I've ever given any indication whatsoever that I know how to ride a motorcycle, that I'm interested in motorcycles, that I know anything about motorcycles. But he tells me about these motorcycles. I've learned some things. You know, it's kind of piqued my interest at times. I, I, mean, I, I mean, I enjoy riding a dirt bike, but I mean, a street bike, I, I think to myself, it would be kind of cool. Uh, minus the fact that it's pretty expensive, dangerous. My parents, my wife, my in-laws would all be upset and disappointed with me if I were to go and invest in one of these, perhaps. Okay, maybe not perhaps. They definitely would. I think to myself, what do I say? I say, that's all fine and well. That's good for you, to my friend. 
But that's just not something I can do. I, I, I can't go there. I highlight that to say, I think there's a lot of people in my life, probably perhaps a number of folks in your life, who probably think of following Jesus something like a motorcycle. That's all fine with you, but that's just not something. That, to be that serious and, and surrendered and, and hyped up about Jesus, that, that sets a little over the top. Maybe, maybe for me sometime down the road. I think a lot of my friends in the community, I mean you obviously, but a lot of my friends in the community that I see on a regular basis, I know they just see me coming and they probably are rolling their eyes internally. I know what Troy is going to talk about. And I'm telling you, I talk a lot about Jesus because I just can't help but appreciate his beauty, his supremacy. And then, and then with that, it's the urgency of it, right? It's, there's an urgency about it that, I, I, that people need to know about Jesus and surrendering their lives to him. It, it's, a, it's an urgency that we see in, in John's message earlier last week. It's an, it's an urgency that we, we want to lift up because we know that life is fragile. That, that he is coming back, as we discussed last week. Chris Combe last week gave me this little, uh, it's, a, it's a Christian almanac from the 19th century, early 19th century. It's a, from the Track Society. It has these little anecdotes along with uh, the, the, the almanac. And I found this great quote in there this week. It, it, it reads this. Mercy is like a rainbow. We must never look for it at night. It shines not in the other world. If we refuse mercy here, we must have justice to eternity. So don't, don't look for the rainbow. Well, I, I, I'm trying to say today, wherever you are, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to those who are at home. I'm telling you about the urgency of following Jesus. Because you can't go looking for a rainbow at night. Come and experience his mercy. Here's how I want to break down our text this morning. There's two main things, but here are the three kind of movements or the three headings. First is a family tree. The second is a wilderness temptation. And then last is the second Adam's triumph. A family tree, uh, simply there's, there's... uh, a genealogy, other gospel accounts have them. It's a little bit different. This one is than, say, Matthew's because it works in reverse. Right? It, it, it doesn't begin with Jesus. It ends with Jesus. It's, it goes all the way back to, to, not to Abraham, but beyond. It goes back all the way to Adam. Also, the focus here is more so on this genealogy in chapter 4, excuse me, at the end of chapter 3, is more focused on Joseph than on Mary. And this is Jesus' legal, so to speak, not biological. This is his legal family tree. And the reason I think Luke, as the author, would like to bring this into focus is he's trying to highlight the fact that Jesus is the right man. He's the right man with the right lineage. He's actually at the right age. Because what we read in verse 23 of chapter 3 is that he was around the age of 30. That's exactly the time that a Hebrew priest would begin his work in the temple and working with uh, the, the ministry of making sacrifice for the people's sins. And Jesus is stepping forward in this as well. And then the way that he even closes it in verse 38, he says that he is both Jesus. What are the last two uh, titles there? Two big titles of Jesus. The son of man. 
right before chapter 3, excuse me, the son of Adam and the son of God. He was both a son of man and a son. This is highlighting, of course, the fact that Jesus is fully both of these. And these are both uh, titles that I think uh, are illustrated in what we now encounter uh, in his temptation as he heads out. So this second heading, this is is the the main heading that we're going to focus on, is this wilderness temptation. We see this son of Adam, full-blown human because, I mean, you you, you get a sense of his frailty. He's a human. He has this intense struggle clearly with, with hunger. I mean, look at verse uh, verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he had nothing to eat those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, Luke didn't need to tell us that. <laughs> I mean, it's like saying the Patriots won and everyone was happy. You know, it's like, of course. Uh, but, but Jesus was hung. He was hungry. Physically, he is a human who's experiencing his frailty, his need. I'm, I'm, I would anticipate, of course, that he had an intense season of loneliness. For those 40 days. Verse 2. The, the, the participle there. Is being tempted. In other words. It wasn't just an occasional thing. It wasn't just the three that are listed that we read. It was an ongoing barrage of temptation. That he, t- he faced for those 40 days. And then Jesus encounters an angel. Not, 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 not an angel of, 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 of God. A messenger of the spirit of God. But now one of evil. A fallen angel. We talked about this. Um, several uh, weeks ago, the last sermon I did in December of the close of 2020 was on angels. And I'd encourage you to go back and listen. But this is an example where Satan comes forward as this arch fallen angel uh, who has uh, he has a mission in view. And that's to deter Jesus and to, to thwart the whole plan. And he has many demons who work uh, alongside of him. We know this. We know what temptation is as well. The devil was a fallen angel who rebelled. And now he is the God of this age. He has, he has a plan. Here are the three overarching temptations that he offers up and appeals to Jesus. The first one in verse 3, while he is weak, while he, while he, is, you know, he is exhausted and he is hungry, he says, if you are the son of God, verse 3, then command these stones, what? To, to become bread. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, since you are the son of God. He says, if. He says actually twice he says, if you're the son of God. If. As if to to try to to rattle what he just heard at the baptism, the skies opening up and the voice of the father saying, you are my son with whom I'm pleased. Jesus is being tempted to doubt that the heavenly father, what he said was true, that the son, that he as a son would deserve better. But Jesus rebuts this. With a quotation from uh, from Hebrew scripture, Deuteronomy 8, 3, man cannot live by bread alone. Now, the fuller context of that is, is highlighting the manna that God provided for his people. Man cannot live, Deuteronomy 8 goes on to say, verse 3, cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And God does provide, and his word is to be trusted, and his word is to be desired above our desires. Second temptation, verse 5, the devil shows him the kingdoms of the world, invites him to surrender, and they'll be his. Now, this is kind of an appeal to uh, our impatience, to, 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 to Jesus' impatience. This is a shortcut because Jesus has already been promised all of these things, multiple places. Psalm 2 is an example. He will give all of this. All of his enemies, will God the Father will make a footstool to the anointed, the true king, Jesus. 
So he already has this. He already has a glory and an authority coming. He will get he will gain his people, too. But this is a foolish shortcut. Praise God. Jesus is committed to the plan. He's not ready to grab glory. He knows that in God's plan, there is suffering before there is glory. And he is faithful to that. He shows us a faithful son. And then he goes on to quote verse eight in response. And uh, excuse me, this is again Deuteronomy six In verse eight. He replies, you shall worship the Lord, your God and him alone serve. Third temptation, verse nine. What does Satan do? The devil brings him to the high point of the temple. And he says, hey, listen, again, if you're the son of God. If throw yourself off. And we're our, and he says, you like to quote scripture, Jesus? I'll quote scripture. And this is when he actually takes up one of the one of the Psalms as well and says that won't it be he will command. This is verse 10. This is Satan quoting uh, quoting scripture. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. So go ahead. He's going to make a sensational uh, delivery of you. He, he will show his power. He must. So go ahead and try And what does he say? No, I prefer to trust God than to test God. Even without the the mission and the office of Jesus, we we, we can identify, right? We're not not Jesus pressed out into the wilderness for 40 days, but but sometimes we feel as though we're in a wilderness. And we're we're not the son of God. He is the son of God, but we know what it's like and he's identifying with our temptations. We know what it's like to hear the enemy, the father of lies. Jesus later calls him in John eight. We know that the father of lies comes to us and he has. And you've heard me say this. He has his two punch, right? The left hook and the right hook. The left hook is temptation, temptation, temptation. You deserve a break. You. You. You need to take matters into you. You've been waiting long enough. And God will understand. You need to act on that desire. You need to, you, you need, you deserve this. Temptation, temptation, temptation. It's not that big of a deal. No one's going to be hurt. It's complete. You, you, you can see this. And then when you do succumb to that temptation, then there's accusation. That's the right hook. See, you're not truly a son. You're always going to fail. You're not a daughter of God. He can't love you. He can't forgive you. The accusations, I know these very well. You failed. You're not devoted. He wants to disrupt the fellowship that we have with God. And he would love to destroy us if he can. So I I want to ask, let's take a step back and say, well, what is Jesus doing in this temptation? What, where, why is Jesus in this wilderness? You see, this is where he's supposed to be. We, on the other hand, we stumble into temptation. Sometimes we walk. Sometimes we skip right into temptation. Sometimes temptation completely catches us off guard and we are surprised. But you know the difference here is that Jesus was, verse 1, chapter 4, look, look at what it says. Full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. 
You see, he is going out as his first matter of business on mission with a purpose, and that is to encounter the enemy and to encounter these temptations. Now, I know that we sometimes look at this thing and we go, oh, well, let's look at how we deal with temptation. Jesus did all this just to show us the the best way to combat temptation. No, that is not the primary mission or the writing of of Luke's intent. Not, Not that that's unimportant, and I'll even touch upon that at the very close. But the main point in recording this and the main point in Jesus going out into the wilderness filled and prompted and compelled and led by the Holy Spirit is to deal a death blow to the work of Satan. And he does this in fulfillment. He has been baptized. He's received the acclaim of the Heavenly Father. And he heads out to a suffering obedience and deals this this blow. First John 3, 8 says this. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason... This is one of the finest verses in all the New Testament if you want to know why Jesus came into the world. The reason, John writes, the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is just the beginning of Jesus' ministry. His mission. By the way, the Father does vindicate His Son. That's not recorded by Luke, but we read in Matthew's account, Matthew 4, of this same Temptation in the wilderness that indeed, Matthew 4, 11, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So God, the father cared for God, the son. But he was on mission in the wilderness. The last thing I want to say, this last heading, and it, it's because it, it's it's two places, right? We're 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 back to the garden with Adam and we're out to the wilderness in the temptation and, and we, we have both of these going on. But all throughout all this, what's in view is the victory and the triumph of the second Adam. The second Adam's triumph. The course, this course is through the entire account. The fact that Luke has this genealogy ongoing and it ends with Adam is an indicator that Luke, in writing this, wants us to have in view Genesis chapter 3. And what do we discover there? After, after the, the, the simple request, the law of God given, the, the, the desire for our parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, what happens? As our representative, Adam is our father in this, and, and, and we with him fell in sin at that time in the garden, this simple request. And, it was, and now we've been, we, 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 we've been sent into corruption, chaos, and the fall ever since. If you want to know what's wrong with the world, and if you haven't asked yourself that question, I don't know where your head is. But it is, it is messed up. And it, that's not new. It is the fall of the curse of sin. And there is still hope. The glimpse of the rainbow, going back to that cry of mercy, is even there. In the garden, when, when God pronounces a curse, he sends them out of the garden. He says to Adam and Eve, he says particularly to Eve in Genesis 3, he has this, this, this hope. He says, someday the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. There will be a descendant, a, a God-man, a Messiah who would come, a second Adam, another representative who, who would overcome. And that's the title he is given. 
The second Adam, Paul refers to him as such in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15. Second Adam. We already know that things are, 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 are cursed because of the first Adam and we are with that. Let's just here consider for a moment briefly a bit of comparison and contrast to what we read here and what we saw with our father, the first Adam in the garden. Are you with me? If you fell asleep, wake up. Both Adam, here's the comparison contrast. Both Adams, the first Adam, our father in the garden, and the second Adam, Jesus, both of them faced temptation and a test from Satan. Both Adams encountered the devil's ability and strategy to twist the word of God. Both encountered desires for food. It is for the the, 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 the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for Adam in the garden and his bread for our Lord Jesus, the second Adam. But this is where there's a divergence. And it's a complete game changer because for the first Adam, he was there with his wife in the garden. And it was a garden of abundance and plenty and plenty. And in contrast, Jesus, the second Adam, is completely alone in a wilderness desert of want. The first Adam chose to disobey and to distrust God's one word. And the second Adam obeyed and trusted and knew and used the whole counsel of God. Adam turned the garden into a cursed wilderness. And Jesus enters this wilderness and takes us to a garden of fellowship with God. What do we learn? Jesus will undo the second Adam, Jesus Will undo. We get a glimpse of this, this first blow of victory against this, the, the father of lies, Satan. Jesus will undo the tragedy and the curse of the first Adam. And he will achieve this as our representative if we trust in him by faith today. That is urgent. You need to trust him today by faith. Repentance and faith. Why? I'll tell you why. Because Hebrews 2 tells us great and good news. But we see him, that is Christ, Hebrews 2, 9, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He suffered temptation, affliction, ridicule, humiliation. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Full obedience in our place. Now, amen? Now, there's a victor here that's in view. He's coming into focus. And we know that he achieves it in death and resurrection. But it's in light of this victory and his, this victor, Jesus, that we have hope that we as daughters and sons have an, an inheritance that outshines the sun. S-U-N. Remember last week, Christianity is, is a four-letter word religion. Because it's not a two-letter. It's not spelled D-O, do this. It's spelled D-O-N-E, done. It's not because of our obedience, but Christ. So that in light of this, this, this great finished work of Jesus done on our, our account, the second Adam, a brief word now, okay, about practical application when it does come to facing temptation. I'm not talking about uh, I'm not talking about chocolate right now. I'm talking about 
heart-wrenching. Am I going to violate my conscience temptation? Let me just highlight four things that I think we do learn from Jesus. It's just a way of, of, of practically thinking here. Notice, of course, that Jesus, I didn't read this verse, but it's back in chapter 3, verse 22, that he, he after he's baptized, he prays. He knows what he's heading into. He prays. This happens many times along the way. As, as, as for us, a strategy, of course, is that we would cry out to him. He loves to hear his children pray. It's one of the reasons that we're going to pray here in a moment, right? Deliver us from, no, what does he say? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, is what the actual instruction is of Jesus. So we pray first. And then the second thing we see with Jesus is that, of course, he does trust in the Father's love. This is my son, chapter 3, verse 23. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. That's how it closes out. That's ringing in his ears when he is in the valley of suffering. He forgets not that he belongs to the Father. The third thing he has is the power of the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 1. It's the Spirit who is leading and accompanying him. We need to have God's Spirit to combat the great counselor that he is, temptation. That's one of the objects of our prayer, is that we would pray for God's Spirit to control. He knows, also the fourth thing I would say, is that Jesus knows and uses God's Word to fight temptation. Multiple times, verse 4, verse 8, he says, it is written. In response to the, the, the devil's lies and temptations, the twisting of Scripture, the, the, the allurement of choosing what is evil, he chooses, he chooses to battle temptation with God's word. He also says in verse 12, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to, test, to the test. We need these things. When Satan comes, not if, but when, and appeals to our flesh, and, 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 and comes and, and, and appeals to our weakness and our desires, we need to be able to rebuttal and say, no. Philippians 4 tells me, my God shall, shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise. We also need to pray that we would be filled and controlled with the Holy Spirit so that we can walk and run by faith. I say both of those in particular because sometimes the Bible says that we need to wait on the Lord. And, in, and so that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a walk pace. We need to wait on the Lord. And then there's other times that the Bible says in response to temptation, especially Ephesians 6, 18, sexual temptation, it says flee, which means flee, run. Sometimes in our culture and in our unbelief, we ourselves, we walk with temptation and we run from suffering. Think about that. We walk with temptation, but we flee and run from suffering. When sometimes we say, God, you've brought me to the wilderness, I'm going to wait on you and see how you provide. Help me endure the suffering. When we look at Jesus, we see patience, faithfulness, Saying that very thing, wait on the Lord who will provide. 
we see the triumph of the second Adam that says we don't need to exalt and deify our desires. We need to deny them and find the joy in true submission to the Father. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, our Lord, we pray with great thanks because your name is majestic in all the earth. Please, may the good news of the gospel fall fresh on our ears and our hearts. Forgive us, Lord, today for the way that we have handled our desires and temptation. Lord, forgive us for our self-help. Forgive us for our self-reliance. Lord, help us to wait on you for all things, trusting your promises, rejoicing in your power. There have been many losses, Lord, changes, headaches, heartaches. In this last season, we see the impact of, of this pandemic, Lord. We do want to acknowledge that you have answered many prayers and we're grateful. We're not entitled. We cry out for mercy, not justice. Thank you, God, for answered prayers. Thank you especially for answered prayers as we pointedly, with earnest, cried out for our sister Emily. Thank you for bringing her home this week. Sustain her. Thank you. We know that we live in the midst of evil and in confusing days. There's plenty of unrest and division and fear There's people that are struggling financially, relationally, emotionally, people struggling with their health. Lord, may our struggles be marked with waiting on you, trusting in your promises, again, rejoicing in your power. Lord, we know that you have set us free. In the end, ultimately, our salvation isn't prosperity in this life or health. It is an adoption and an inheritance that cannot Fade or spoil. In the meantime, Lord, make us a lover of Jesus. Make us peacemakers and ambassadors, people who love to speak and walk in the gospel. Even now, we pray this in Jesus' name.